Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSB Magazine. You're listening to a new The Hacker Factory podcast with hacker maker Philip Wiley. You're about to discover what the role of a professional hacker entails, the different specializations it holds, and what it takes to learn and become one. Enjoy the conversation as Philip and guests unveil the secrets of professional hacking, a mysterious, intriguing, and often misunderstood occupation. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast. Today I'm excited to have Michael Farnham joining. Uh, the first time I met Michael was back in HUSETCon in 2019 uh, when I spoke there. It was actually the only the second conference that I'd given my Pentester Blueprint talk at. And one of the things I love too is the, the open-mindedness and the insight that you've seen that those type of talks are needed at conferences. You know, up until then, you didn't see me in those talks is mainly like at B-Sides conferences, but yeah, that was the second time that I gave that that talk. So it's good to see conferences become more open-minded, but uh, that's I guess that's when we, we first met and uh, been seeing each other since at other events and at HughesetCon. Phil, I'm, first of all, thank you for having me on here. Really, really appreciate it. Honored to be on. Honestly, I don't know that that was only the second time you gave that, so it, it makes me feel pretty good at that that was yeah. rather that you gave it there the second time. Yeah, because actually I gave it, uh, the first time I gave it, it was a B-Sides DFW in 2018. Yeah. And so I believe that was the first, yeah, because uh, I spoke at B-Sides Austin before that, and they actually select out of my talks, they selected my talk on reverse reverse engineering education. Well, they could have been the first, man. They, they missed out yeah. on their chance to. <laughs> well, no, seriously, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. Um, very, very honored to have you at USACOM back then and see all the stuff you've done since then and just helping the, helping the industry a lot. Uh, it's good to have you in this uh, great state of Texas so you can come down and do that stuff here locally. It's- thanks. Yeah, it's a, it's an honor. We have, we're pretty fortunate to have some good conferences here in Texas. I mean, uh, Hughes Con and Texas Cyber Summit are two of my favorites. I got to go to Last Con for the first time mm-hmm. last year, which was fun. But yeah, but Last Con's focused. Uh, my, I think Last Con, uh, I started Hughes Con, I believe the same year that Last Con started. And back when, uh, besides DFW first started as well, we were kind of forming a, like a, conference triangle texas what we used to call it the texas conference triangle or something like that that we were doing and we were we would actually work with each other to make sure we didn't overlap and there was one year that i think last con happened one week then here's that con happened the next week and then besides dfw i think was on a weekend um and they all happened with like literally it was within like a 10-day span of each other and we had people make the trip on all three of them. It was really, it was a cool year. I think that was right like in 2012 or something, uh, or 2013. And, uh, it was a cool year to have all of those go on at the same time. We've since not, you know, not doing everything exactly the lined up like we used to back then, but it's still a lot of fun to have 
some good. And thanks to Cyber Summit, obviously. That Joseph has got a great conference out there as well. So, yeah, we're fortunate to have people like you and Joseph in the community that, you know, do so much for the community and, and, you know, bring these great conferences, you know, to us because otherwise, you know, one of the things I think, uh, one of the things that's great about Texas Cyber Summit at Husek Con is it's not a vendor conference. So you're not listening to a bunch of vendor talks. Those things are just kind of boring for the people that are attending. Mm-hmm. And for anyone listening that does conferences, you need to take a notes from, from what Michael's doing because people don't want to come to hear a sales pitch. They want to come in and, and learn. I, I appreciate that. That that was one of the reasons I started it was because I, I'd go to a conference here and I, I won't name, there's two that everybody knows about. Uh, they go around and all they are is vendor cons and they they go all around the country. I won't name names. I'll be nice, but I had gone to both of those in one year, uh, back when I was, uh, first moved over into like a pre-sales role uh, with, uh, Acuvot way back in the day, pre before they became Optic. And I went to those two conferences and I just, it was exactly what you were talking about. I was just like, why am I just listening to a bunch of sales pitches? This isn't helping me in my day-to-day job. And I had gone to uh, some like larger national conferences, you know, the black cats and the RSAs and all that kind of stuff and saw the differences. I was like, why can't we bring this locally? Knew of some of the local conferences like the Schmoocons. And then I think uh, B-Sides was I can't remember when Jack started that, but that was right about the same time or like right before. Then, you know, DerbyCon had started the year after. Unfortunately, that was not around anymore, but that had, uh, DerbyCon had started right after mine. Actually, I think they started the same year. It just wasn't called DerbyCon until 2011. So we were seeing all these you know, pop, some of these popping up and then uh, it all just kind of, kind of had a boom after besides the FW. Or besides itself started, it was just nice to see all these local conferences pop up where you education and not just to your point, listen to somebody talk about their product. It's boring and not, yeah, not helpful in most ways. No, because one of the things that happens is people come to those conferences. A lot of times they're not sitting in there. They're just out in the lobby, hanging out, or, you know, maybe you checking don't. out the vendor areas and not necessarily listening to the talks. I think that's a good lesson to for people to learn that put on conferences because, you know, you get these, these vendors that are sponsoring the conferences and they pay to get their people to speak. And one of the things I've kind of seen, uh, kind of saw an experience from a conference where that was going on is that, uh, some of the people they have speak really don't want to speak anyway. <laughs> yeah. And, it's exactly. not as much fun. They're so being it seems forced like you, through it. Yeah. yeah. And, and then when you get people that want to speak and then also too, if you, have the caveat that it needs to be non-vendor related. Some can't speak to that, but sometimes if you bring in quality speakers like you do at HuSecCon, it makes it a better experience. Yeah, and I would think. And I would think, as far as uh, you know, getting sponsors for the event, it would probably be more successful with something like that than having people just pay to speak type of scenario. Well, I mean, and what's interesting is we we have a traditional call for papers, and that's that. I think the majority of our speakers are call for papers, but we actually do sell speaking slots. The thing is, is that we give them a caveat. It's like, look, the, the first time, as an example, the first time we ever decided to do that, I was very hesitant to do it because I did not want to turn it into a con. And so what I told 
I sold two spots. This was back in like 2011 or 2012. And I sold two spots to vendors. And I told both of them, I was like, you need to give an educational talk. Do not come in here and give a vendor pitch. I was like, we're going to build this as, as a regular session. We're going to put it, intersperse it with all the other sessions. And one of them sent back a really good synopsis and sent back a good title. And it was going to be an educational talk. You could tell it was, a, you know, around the topic of what their products saw, but it was still a good talk. The other one they sent in. It was just come and see what our product does. That was it. And I, I was like, are you sure this is what you want us to know? They were like, yep, this is what we want to talk about. Cause they thought we were a regular vendor con and they had three people in their room. The other one had, you know, like 50 people in the room. It was extremely successful. Guess which one was really happy with the results of that conference. So we learned that lesson early on and then we came back to all of our vendors because we don't charge a lot. I mean, it's literally 50 bucks for the regular attendee ticket, a hundred bucks for the VIP when you get some cool swag and stuff. So we're not, we literally, for what we do for our conference or two-day conference, we literally lose money on ticket sale. So we rely on our sponsors and we said, well, in order for us to be able to do better things with our conference, how can we do it? Let's sell more speaking slots, but let's have the caveat cannot come in here and do a vendor pinch. You have to talk about some educational topic. What's that going to do? You can put on the brand or on your slides, your brand and say, Hey, you know, this is, I'm from this company. That's completely fine, but it has to be an educational topic. And you're going to have a booth out in the vendor hall and people are going to watch your talk and they're going to go to your booth to talk to you. They're absolutely. And it's, it's played out every year. We've been doing that. Um, with great success and to your point, the people who come and speak, if they get there, they know they want them to be successful. So they get good. Generally it's good people. Every once in a while, they'll throw in a, a marketing person in there. But even a lot of times, I mean, that's not an insult to marketing people that, you know, I've, I've done the marketing job, but sometimes they tend to be a little more really, really high level, but they tend to do a good job too, because their topic is something that's educational. Yeah, I think in general, of course, I know even even when you get outside of uh, you know conference talks and you're trying to sell a product, I think it, to me, in my opinion, it's more valuable if you sell the need for your product because I've done some demos for the IANS conferences while I was at Psycognito, and one of the things I always try to do is show the need for the product. If you just sit there show all the details of the product, sometimes people may not realize why they need it, but if you can show the need for the product. Yeah. Then I think it goes a long way. It's cases, right? This is why you need it. This and some people don't know that they need it. I mean, you know, my day job is talking about or talking with my customers about vendors, about, you know, cybersecurity products and that kind of stuff. And knowing that stuff really well and knowing those use cases and you gotta educate people first. So we kind of got into the conference thing pretty quickly. So if you don't mind kind of backing <laughs> up and and, and sharing your background, kind of how you got, you know, your story, how you got started and, and kind of what you're doing today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, my story starts shoot way back in backwoods, Mississippi. I was, uh, where I'm from. My only, I was probably the only kid 
in my high school and I like, you know, my graduating class was 86 people. So I don't get too stupid, but I was the only kid in my uh, high school that had a computer. Uh, my dad had a friend uh, that he went to school with um, over here in Texas. And uh, back in the eighties, he actually had an old portable K-Pro 2 computer. If you remember those, um, it was probably made out of stainless steel thing must weigh 50 pounds, but he used it in a modem to trade stocks way back in the mid eighties. So that was you know, not, not a lot of people were doing that. He upgraded up to a, a Macintosh, you know, had his, <laughs> that is nice Macintosh. And my dad was like, Hey, can I buy that from you? And, give it to my son. And I, so I had a computer way back in, I don't know, 80, I guess about 86 or something like that, that I had it. And it just kind of started from there. I mean, that, you know, typical geek kid who had all this outdoor stuff that I could do, which I did a lot of stuff outdoors. I was born and raised in like 24 acres and had all kinds of trails and had a good time. But a lot of times I was inside playing on the computer doing doing stuff and programming and basic and all of that good stuff in my teens. Um, then got, got out of there when the army didn't do anything technical in the military, but I always knew I was on a tank. I drove a tank, um, but I always knew I wanted to come back and do something technical. So after I got out of the military, came back over here to Houston. My dad got me a job at civil engineering firm, started going to college, found a uh, or had a girlfriend whose dad or whose stepfather, I guess, um, owned a little computer company, just building, building com computers for various companies, working on printers, all that good stuff. That was back in 94, I guess. And, uh, started doing that. Like at one point, all of the men's warehouses in the whole United States had my computers in them way back in the mid nineties that had my name written in the bottom of it. You know, it was all three eighty six and four eighty six computers. And then they threw a novel book at me one day and said, Go to hook up these two computers on this side of the two sides of the different room. And I was like, okay, I don't know how to do that, but we'll figure it out. And that kind of got me to be, you know, my love of of building computers and uh, tinkering with networks and seeing how those things work. Um and just kind of went from there. I, I was a practitioner in various roles. A lot of, you know, like a lot of guys your age and my age, we started on the network side before we got into the other side um, of doing anything in security. And security wasn't even really an industry when I started. So just in networking and got to see, uh, got to do run some nationwide wide area networks and enterprise you know, settings and got to see how all that stuff worked. And then the uh, internet really started really, really, really kicking in, you know, in that yeah. like probably 98, 99 timeframe where people were really using that for business. And I saw this magic thing called a firewall and I was just like, what in the world is this thing? What does this do? Um, and uh, just started realizing I like, kind of waking up to the whole, idea of a security role as, as an actual viable position. And I knew about it, did stuff, you know, we had different pieces that we put in place to make sure we were secure, but we pretty much were isolated within our own environment. We didn't have a lot that we did with the network. I mean, everything was not a closed spray relay network. 
network around the United States. So that was all private networking to worry about. Um, so when we started using more of the internet and using VPNs and that kind of stuff, really started seeing that need for security and uh, moved into a security consulting and network security consulting role at a small little company. And that really was where I got my first security specific certification, got my CISSP back in the day. I was, that was 2001. I was, I'm, I don't have the CISSP anymore. I've let that lapse a couple of years ago, but that just started my journey in pure security and just kicked off from there, did various roles, went over to, uh, moved out of security management. I moved into a security manager role, moved out of that back in uh, 2007 and went over to, uh, I mentioned Acubot earlier. So that's now called Optive when they did their merge with Fish, Fish Net back in the day. Uh, so I was there for seven years doing pre-sales FC work, you know, doing consulting work, doing uh, technical marketing work, all kinds of stuff. But that got me, got me kind of my love for doing pre-sales architecture work where you go talk to customers and really help before the sale and help figure out whatever they do. So did a little bit of AppSec work over there, went to Fortify, worked over there on the application security side of things and did a short stint alert logic here in Houston and then moved over here when I got the opportunity to become a pre-sales manager. I wanted to, I, they had a, the day job is set solutions where I work now. Um, they needed to put some structure around the pre-sales architecture group. And they, those are just people that run around with the sales team and, you know, help, help customers figure out what they're going to do, what they're going to buy and how they're going to put solution together. And then back in 2019, right before COVID, I've moved into the CTO role and the role I have now is I run the pre-sales teams here as well. I've got a, a guy that helps run that whole team, specifically all the architects report to him. So a lot of what I get to do on a day-to-day -day basis is focus on new technology with the cybersecurity vendors and learn emerging vendors and even existing vendors that do a lot of work that have been around a while, you know, the Palo Altos and CyberArks and all of those of the world and, uh, help figure out where they fit into different customer environments and then help them figure out how they're going to integrate those into their environments, help them build out solutions all the way around. So it's actually really, really fun gig. I don't have the technical edge that I used to do. I'm not on the keyboard, you know, on a, on a screen, on a CLI somewhere configuring stuff. I get to uh, stay at a higher level, but I get to have CISOs walk into here and, you know, sit down with them for two and a half, three hours and just figure out what their next steps are. You know, is there any emerging stuff that's coming out? What do they need to do to strategize here or there? And that, that's just a lot of fun to me. Uh, it's a really good time and it gets to help them figure out their strategy and we can help them work and do some work in that developing that strategy. We do, if not, you know, we just have a good time talking and then we go get to eat and drink. So that's the, that's another good thing about the gig. So. Yeah. You, you guys seem to put on some, some pretty cool events. Yeah. Yeah. We're, um, we're doing the rodeo tonight, uh, barbecue cook off. So every year Houston's a big thing. 
we're doing that tonight. So we'll be eating barbecue. It's weird. They, they don't always cook barbecue every night. Last night we had steak and shrimp at the, uh, in our tent, the, <laughs> there by NRG stadium. So that was interesting. Uh, you know, we do golf tournaments, um, we generally go to the big cybersecurity conferences and see our customers and our partners there. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, you get to play, but you work hard, right? So it, it's, it's, you're always on when you're, when you're at those events, talking to your customers and your partners. Um, it sounds like a really good time and I'm not lying. It's a good time, but at the same time, I did this last night with the barbecue. I'm going to do it again tonight. My feet hurt. I, my throat is sore. I don't normally sound like Barry White. Um, it's, uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's work too, but it, it, there could be a, there are a lot worse jobs, believe me. It's good. Yeah. I'm sure being the person like you are, I'm sure you enjoy all the networking and interacting with people. Yeah. That's my confounds my wife. Cause she's an introvert and I'm definitely an extrovert. I get tired. Don't get me wrong, but it generally energizes me, uh, when I get to sit around and just go shake hands and people I don't know, introduce myself, people I do know. I, I think a lot of people think people in this industry are just all introverts and they just want to sit down. There's, it's the same type of people in all industries. You got to have introverts, you got to have extroverts, you got to have a mix of the two. Um, I, I enjoy it, but Phil, there's times when I leave an event and I get in my truck to go home and I don't turn the radio on and I just breathe a little bit because it can be a lot of conversation and your brain just needs to rest, but I do enjoy it. That's good. Yeah. It's kind of funny thinking along the same lines right at the beginning of the pandemic. I remember at that point I was kind of getting saturated with going to different meetups and conferences. And I remember going to the last, uh, DC 214 meeting before everything shut down because of the pandemic. And I remember thinking, man, this is tough coming out here, but you know, you just show up because you, you know, you, you need to. And then all of a sudden pandemic hits and then you're not able to do anything, but virtual events. <laughs> yeah, that got, we did a whole lot of virtual events, but we pivoted, uh, here at, at work, uh, at set solutions. Cause I was already going to start a podcast and, and do more digital marketing stuff here. And then when the pandemic, we already had the plans that we're going to move into that. And then when the, um, pandemic hit, we just immediately pivoted and just started doing everything from home. And it was actually really good because we, we drew our social media, media following quite, quite a bit and got a lot of good educational out really, really quickly during those, uh, two years of shutdown. And I, as much as that sucked, that part of it was really a lot of fun. And we learned a lot of lessons from it. I had already done a podcast for several years before that and uh, was really kind of knew that world. So they kind of asked me to do it, but we were doing webinars and then we were doing, I don't know, so many wine tasting events where you had to mail stuff out to people and <laughs> people got tired of that too. They're like, look, I love good wine and good food and whiskey and everything else, but I'm really tired of just people really needed to, a lot of people anyway, needed to have those person events again. So it's good. That's coming back. Yeah, definitely. Definitely was because I know if it wasn't for the virtual events, I don't know what I would have went crazy because there'd been nothing to do. So it's good to have their virtual events, but 
but there's nothing like meeting people in, in person compared to, to virtual. Absolutely. No, this is, it's a lot of fun. I'm glad we're back in full swing doing this stuff. So. Yeah, same here. It seems like it's just back to the way things used to be, which is good to see. It's good that people have learned how, you know, we've got safety measures out there and, and for the most part, things have been fairly safe and it's good that, you know, we figured out how to do these things safely and get back into, to in person. Cause I know that had to affect a lot of people's mental health, just being isolated and not getting oh, to yeah. be able to attend those type of events. Yeah. Especially, I mean, you're talking about introverts and experts, I mean, salespeople, Miners are generally very extroverted. So, and, and it hurts sales too. I mean, that's an economical issue, right? Because they couldn't always directly get sales, everything else. They just, it messed a lot of stuff up. I get the necessity for it, but it, it was not, it was not fun. So, uh, you know, one of the main focuses of this show is to help others get started in, into cybersecurity. So what advice would you have for someone that's wanting to get into cybersecurity? Um, one of the biggest things I would say is don't think of this as a purely technical field. I know this is of a hacker factory, but that I think, and I've heard you say it on previous podcasts is there's more than just, you know, knowing how to pen test and knowing how to do things technically, um, explore those options. First of all, even if that's just a starting point, even if you want to do something um, technical in the long run, one direction I've seen people take it is becoming, uh, if they've got this aptitude, is becoming project managers. And we have a guy here, Kenny, that's up in Dallas that was project manager for us for a number of years. And then uh, he always had the technical aptitude. He just didn't have the experience. So he rolled out of here and found another gig, uh, doing more technical stuff and they turned back around and is with us again and is full blown consulting and doing some really cool consulting gigs, DevSecOps gigs. He's a big container, Kubernetes guy, you know, loves all of that stuff. So, uh, cons you know, look at different avenues of getting in. I think a lot of people these days just kind of default to the, the analyst role and there's nothing wrong with that, uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. So you don't, you don't have to go out and get much certs for the higher end stuff. I do recommend getting some of the starting certs uh, and, and looking at those. I know, uh, ISC squared has just come out. If that's, you know, if you like that organization, some, it can be controversial for some people, but, uh, They've got the CC cert that's brand new that people can get into. It's even, it's a beginner cert, you know, and you can like, or like the security plus or things like that. And security plus is actually uh, more involved and more difficult. I think it is. I took it sight unseen uh, without, you know, any kind of study in several years ago. And I passed, but it was like, wow, that was more challenging than I thought it was going to be. But those are, you know, those are typical things, but I, I would just say, don't just look at it as a technical thing. Um, considering the certification route, consider a certificate route, which is, you know, different than a certification, but a certificate through your college, because a lot of them have programs that you can just take those and you don't have to worry about all the other pieces. Uh, 
always, I think a lot of people hear this advice, but just network the heck out of things, go to conferences, uh, go to, you, there's, we talked about it already, but those local conferences, you can go and meet people. I met a guy last night at the rodeo for goodness sake that I want to break into cyber and he's at a local university here and he does help best stuff. He wants to break into cyber. He I was like, just find him. I said, just come to me. Here's get, get with me on LinkedIn and come to me and ask me and we'll talk through it. Get up. So I'm saying all that to say, get find a mentor at one of these conferences to help you out and help you run through some of that stuff. That's always a good way of doing it. I love mentoring people. A lot of these conferences have those like resume villages and that kind of stuff. Look for conferences that do that, that can help you out. Those are, those are all good ways. Just keep your, your mind open to it and uh, be willing to do something that's not exactly what you want to do in the beginning, but it can help you lead into other things. Become a PM at a customer or company like mine. You'll absolutely get exposed to so much and you'll have the ability to do other things. And the guy that we've got running our IT shop here, um, you'll appreciate this old army guy. And he's veteran and done all kinds of odd jobs. Wants to get into cyber. He's starting out by being our IT help desk guy. Within a couple of years, he's got a great aptitude for it. He'll be a consultant. I guarantee you. So just look for alternative ways to get in. Yeah, that's that's some good advice because too many times people want to be the pen tester or do whatever, and they try to get into that, and it's a little more difficult. So that is great advice to start and get in other areas, even help desk or desktop support are good ways to get in. Be willing to do the non-sexy stuff to get to the sexy stuff. Yeah. Even though I think a lot, you'll say that pen testing is not always too sexy. Even though people think it. Yeah, the things people don't know about pen testing is sometimes the crazy hours that you have to pen test because they don't want interruptions in the environment. And then sometimes the report that's, writing might not be that fun. Report writing is never fun. That's 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 the hardest part of any, any of it. I've now I know a few crazy people who like it. So uh, yeah. <laughs> if you like report writing, I would suggest that you go into GRC, Governance Risk and Compliance. That way you get to play with the sales spreadsheets, you get to track compliance, and you get to write a lot of reports and policies and stuff. If you're one of those people, go to GRC. And that's not technical. You just need to know how to map controls. Yeah, and it's like you don't have the competition trying to get into those roles like you do a pen test job because everyone coming into security seems like wants to be pen testers. They really haven't got to see what the other roles involve. Because they watch too many movies, Bill. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's just what the media puts out there. Yeah, the movies and all that. Everyone sees that and they don't realize the other roles. I had a former coworker at, at U.S. Bank that I had on the podcast. He started out in IT at U.S. Bank. He was taking all these SANS DFIR courses to become a forensics analyst. And he decided one, you know, one of the classes he had coming up, he did the master's through SANS. And he decided he's going to take the GPEN course. He thought maybe if I learn pen testing, I'll be a better forensics analyst. And he found out he liked pen testing better and just moved over into pen testing and got a job within the company as a pen tester. Well, and that's another way. I mean, we, if you get into it, like we've got a customer of ours that everybody that works there, they've got a very large security shop. They're, uh, they allocate, I think around 10 grand a year for all of them to take trading. 
And uh, I was talking to James, um, solution architect director, and his his son works for that company. And he was saying, he was giving him advice, like, you're in a certain role now, you want to do something else, go make a case for why you want to do that, why you want to take such and such training. And don't just go to your boss and go, hey, I want to do this. And then, you know, be upset when they don't approve it. Go make a case for it. How does this help the organization? How is this going to help me? Do a little presentation. That right there is going to help you in your career because you need to know how to present things and everything else. So that I would advise doing that too. And that, that could help you make moves into different places. And the organization sees that you're putting due diligence in front of you. You're not making your boss go do all the investigative work. And that helps as well. Yeah, that's that's a great tip there. So we're getting down towards the end of the show. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss before we end? Um, I mean, I, I don't think so. I, I, you know, the mentor stuff is really a big thing for me. Uh, finding a mentor is always good. Uh, I'd say look for those local conferences. Uh, go go do the village in the conferences. Go to the if they've got a village. Go do. You'll meet some really cool and eclectic type people in those environments. That's always good. Um, other than that, I just feel appreciate you having me on the show, man. This is good stuff. Yeah, I appreciate you joining and, and mentioning how people will help you learn those villages. Actually, it took me this long before I decided to try to learn how to pick a lock. But back at uh, Houston Con in twenty twenty one, I learned how to pick a lock because someone there in the lock pick village. Nice. Ask me if I want to learn how to pick locks, and I did, and I learned. So it's a lot of fun. People don't. Yeah. You know, the, I tell you what, practically, it helped me get my neighbor into their house one year when they had locked themselves out of their house, and their the husband was stuck up on their little balcony area because he had accidentally closed the door behind him and locked himself <laughs> out there too, and they were about to call a lock, uh, or yeah, a lock. Uh, my brain just locked. Um. Key guide, whatever you call it. Locksmith? Locksmith. I don't know my brain's over. I just drank coffee too. Um, <laughs> and they were going to, you know, have to pay a couple hundred bucks or whatever. And I was like, hold on a second. Me and my son, who used to help me at Eastside College, and we went over there and picked their front door, got them open. That kind of scared them a little bit, but, you know, now they trust us. Oh, but <laughs> like, here you go. Now you just saved you 300 bucks. I'll take $50 on it. Yeah, so it's got practical uses too, but it is also Yeah. Well thanks for thanks for joining. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you've got events and stuff going on, but thanks for joining. Uh, always an honor to join you, Phil. Thanks for asking. Thanks everyone, and we'll see you in the next episode. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast with Philip Wiley. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. 